A reading from Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8, which can be found in your Pew Bibles on page 610. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do not wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 969. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the smallest, the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you like a three-point sermon, um, you've come on a good Sunday because I want to talk basically about three things this morning. Uh, Three ways of salvation. Salvation by law, salvation by love, and finally salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. So I think you can see where we're heading. These are three ways of salvation that are in stark contrast with one another and show people's approaches to life, um, and they're all different. And I think Jesus speaks to each of these approaches in this little snippet from the Sermon on the Mount this morning from Matthew 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. Uh, If you've got it in front of you, it'll probably be very handy. So the first way people look at life, salvation by law. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that there are some unchanging principles in this world that if you cotton on to them and live by them, life will go better for you. Uh, You could say you find salvation. So there are many self-help courses out there which spell out these principles or laws to live by and people find them helpful. There are many people who take pride in being of good moral character of being part of organisations that help people to develop good moral character. The church is sometimes seen as just one of those organisations. So some people develop good moral character through joining one of these community organisations. Other people do it through joining the church. And so people say, well, each to their own. The important thing is just good moral character. You do it your way, I'll do it my way. 
And if you take that framework, of course, then there's nothing unique about the church or Jesus or faith at all, is there? It's just another one of many ways people try to use to find a good life. Some people who have that background in Christendom would point to the Ten Commandments as the principles or laws by which they try and develop their good character. I don't hear it much today, but in the past I've often heard people say, well, I try and live by the Ten Commandments. Surely that's all that matters. Therefore, I don't need to come to church and I don't need to think too much about religion and all that stuff. I've sometimes wondered if they've actually read the Ten Commandments because what do the first four say? Put God ahead of everything else. (laughs) And somehow they've missed that. In the New Testament, the people who represent this Ten Commandments approach to salvation are the Pharisees. They love the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. They were very strict in their interpretation of those laws and they promoted them strongly within the Jewish community. There was a lot of pressure that came from the Pharisees for people to conform to those laws back there in first century Palestine. And so they were strong on things like Sabbath observance, cleansing rituals, tithing, adherence to the moral stipulations of the Mosaic law. The Pharisees promoted these things and uh, sought to bring their society into conformity with them. And yet, isn't it interesting? Jesus says, this is not the way to salvation. And he regularly clashed with the Pharisees and challenged their understanding. Look at what he says there in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you see, just being a good moral person, whether you use the Old Testament law or some other principles of the universe, uh, is not enough. Jesus is saying that's not enough. You need something different, something that surpasses that. Now, we should admit straight up that Uh, self-help courses, uh, religious rituals, education programs, they can give you insights. And I'm sure people who follow those live a better life than if they didn't. But in the end, what they're doing is really just sailing across the surface and missing the point. What they're about is you trying harder. They're all about you saving yourself and believing that you can do it. And there's no appreciation in the end of how deep the problem is and of the real brokenness inside each one of us. And that that's what needs to be addressed. It can't be papered over with this moral quest. No, that brokenness has to be addressed. And of course, that's what Jesus does. And he does it here in the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you're familiar with the Beatitudes at the start of the sermon. For example, that first Beatitude... I don't think that would make any sense to people who are into salvation by law Uh, because it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's that's silly, isn't it? No, aren't aren't people who are trying harder and, and being successful, aren't they the ones that are blessed? Or blessed are the merciful. Well, it's hard to be merciful when people aren't trying as hard as you. You find that? When I see someone who's not trying as hard as me, I get resentful. (laughs) I say, come on, why aren't you doing it? But uh, 
then I have to come back and realise, no, I'm broken inside too and I need to trust God and I need a saviour and I find mercy afresh. I could also suggest to you that uh, if you, you think you're being a good moral person, look again at the Pharisees because I bet you've got nothing on them. You see, they were the ideal moral citizens of their day. They really had it spelt out in great detail and were living very righteous life in their eyes. Uh, They're the ideal moral citizens of their day, and yet Jesus still said to them, you need a righteousness that's different from that, a righteousness that surpasses that. The Pharisees were not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So one of the things we can certainly say about Jesus is that uh, he wasn't teaching you can be saved through the law. That's not the way to go in Jesus' understanding. But secondly, uh, some people choose salvation by love. And this is the opposite of the law. This approach says, look, there's no overarching principles or laws except for love. And these people want to throw out all of those rules and laws, throw out all the inherited wisdom, the conventions, and recast society in a completely new mould which maximises individual freedom based on love. I think it could be summed up in that little phrase you often hear these days, well, love is love. Love is love. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that, uh, this is my surmising anyway, uh, and I go where angels fear to tread here, but my surmising is that people are looking for love and it doesn't matter where you find it, simply celebrate it when it comes. And no one should question someone else's search for love. So gender doesn't matter. How you self-identify doesn't matter. The number of people involved in the relationship doesn't matter. Love is love. And so as long as there's mutual consent, then celebrate it. Now, some of these relationships do have longevity, but many find it very difficult when everything's so fluid. And many, of course, don't want stability because it's all about experimenting, exploring new avenues and keeping love fresh. What I think is sad is that we now live in a society where uh, we're very scared to say anything is normal. However, in a Christian framework, upholding God's design but showing compassion to those who feel differently should be a reflex action for those of us who follow Jesus. We are to hold on to and defend Christian norms but at the same time show incredible love to those who for whatever reason struggle with those norms or choose to be different. We are to still reach out in love. So you see, people are looking for salvation through this supposed freedom, this uh, path to love. They want to throw out the law, throw out the rules. Now, in the early church, there was someone who exemplified this approach. Uh, His name was Marcion. His context was very different to ours, of course, but uh, a similar principle. He was a bishop who lived in the second century who put forth the idea that Jesus was God's new project in love that... uh, meant the Old Testament was completely obsolete. And so he wanted to completely do away with the God of law of the Old Testament and just focus on Jesus and love. 
probably there are some Christians today who go down that path as well. Maybe you've contemplated it yourself. Um, well, you're following Marcion from the second century. However, what I want to suggest is that if you follow that track, it is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It is not the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is not that simple. Look again at verse 17 where Jesus says this. He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus says very directly, no, they're not being abolished. Uh, so what does it mean for him to fulfill them? Well, think of this little illustration, the rosebud. Rosebud's beautiful to look at, isn't it? But it's a promise of something even more magnificent when it comes out into full bloom. And really, the Old Testament's a little bit like that rosebud. Jesus is the full bloom. He fulfills the law and the prophets, brings it to its true glory. Uh, and so we look at it through the eyes of Jesus. Uh, so he's not abolishing them, he's fulfilling them. Look at verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loved his Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, and he says, if you ignore these commands, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven, So I don't think Jesus would ever subscribe to this love is love uh, mantra, the way people follow today. The law is important to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount is his exposition of the law. Uh, and rather than dismiss it, he takes it to a new level. Uh, and that's what we're exploring through this season. So the law is important to Jesus and love is love really just doesn't cut it. So in our world today, we have these two ways of pursuing the good life or what we might call salvation. Each one has very passionate supporters, but they're quite contradictory ways to look at life. Salvation by law. This is the great moral quest to be the best version of yourself you can be. Or salvation by love, which means doing away with the rules, finding love wherever you can find it. And Jesus contradicts both and he shows a better way. This passage gives us, gives us the clue to that way, but we have to uh, read it alongside uh, all the rest of his teaching in the New Testament uh, and of the epistles as well. And we do get a clear picture. Uh, it's verse 20 in this passage, though, that gives us the clue. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is this righteousness? How can we attain to a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, you all know the answer, don't you? The answer is Jesus. <laughs> That's how we do it. It's by putting on the robe of Christ's righteousness and then living in a relationship of love and obedience to Jesus. And it's an inner righteousness. This is the righteousness that transcends the law and yet still respects the law. It's the righteousness that transcends the popular misconception of love, but redefines it in terms of Jesus. I want to turn to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because I think he uh, uh, 
explains this rather brilliantly. So uh, it's a slightly long quote, but uh, there's some really good stuff in here. And it'll be up on the screen. So this is what he said about this passage. He said, The Pharisees' idea of righteousness was a direct, literal and practical fulfilment of the commandment. The ideal was to model their behaviour exactly on the demands of the law. Of course, they knew they could never realise that ideal. Their obedience was never more than imperfect. But the disciple has the advantage over the Pharisee in that his doing of the law is in fact perfect. How is such a thing possible? Because between the disciple and the law stands one who has perfectly fulfilled it, one with whom we live in communion. They are faced not with a law which has never yet been fulfilled, but with one whose demands have already been satisfied. The righteousness it demands is already there. The righteousness of Jesus which submits to the cross because that is what the law demands. This righteousness is therefore not a duty owed, but a perfect and truly personal communion with God. And Jesus not only possesses this righteousness, but is himself the personal embodiment of it. He is the righteousness of the disciples. Now having this understanding of Jesus as our righteousness changes everything. It means I'm no longer striving to gain my salvation. It means I simply rest in him. It's my communion with him. Uh, That is the the inner righteousness. It does, of course, then have to work its way out in love for the world. Just as Jesus so loved the world, we are called to move out and love the world. And that's what Linda was talking about last week with the salt and light put this in context from our passage last week and so we have to move out but we don't go out into the world with a moral campaign to fix everyone up that's salvation by law and we don't go out into the world to love everyone because love is love that is salt that's lost its saltiness we go out into the world to be the salt and light of Jesus his hands and feet and this is a righteousness which surpasses the scribes And the Pharisees. So, to sum up, there are people in our world today who believe in salvation by the law and they're hooked on this moral quest. There are people in our world today who believe in salvation by love is love and are open to anything goes. But, my friends, we're called to salvation through faith in Jesus, Jesus who is our righteousness. And there is no other way by which we can be saved except through the righteousness of Jesus. Amen.